One, two, one, two, three, four. Kia ora, my name is Maria Lewis and I'm the host of Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series all about the 2001 cult classic Josie and the Pussycats. And I'm producer Blake Howard and welcome to the very last, not really, episode of Josie and the Podcats. Well, it's like the last and a half because we've still got a bonus episode coming out on Wednesday per our same schedule for the past six weeks. So I guess this will be our last like major episode. It's our last major, major episode. Semantics. But yeah, uh, we're at the end and it's safe to say if you've made it this far, then you listen to our episodes on history, development, production, soundtrack, release, and now... Legacy. Cue the Hamilton quote. Legacy. What is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. Legit stoked I was able to get a Hamilton pull in there before the end of the show, but... On to something else, young, scrappy and hungry, just like the country, Josie and the Pussycats had flopped when it hit cinemas in 2001 with that grisly April release date. And it was painful enough looking at the specifics of some of that in our last episode. So we're just going to keep it moving and get on to the good shit. Because even though the biting pop culture satire was hustled out of cinemas within a month, not with a bang, but with a whimper in those international territories, the movie didn't disappear, which, you know, you would expect for something that had critically and commercially bombed to do. That's the beautiful thing about pop culture, though. People want to write the story of a movie in a weekend, but films, books, television, comics, they can have a long tail. Just because something's not an instant hit doesn't mean it, A, doesn't have merit, or B, won't go on to find its audience months, even years after the fact. Here's Mo Shafiq, label manager at Mondo Records. There's another film that I, I quite frequently compare it to. I don't know how familiar you are with the film Speed Racer by the Wachowskis. Yeah, Speed Racer is um, another similar gem, um, another bomb, another, you know, movie that uh, based on a beloved property that also trafficked in ideas that were maybe a little too big for the, uh, <laughs> you know, for the film as expected. And um, I think about both of those films and one of the things that, the Wachowskis get accused of um, is being so goddamn earnest, right? I was just rewatching Josie before this um, this call, and I was thinking that it, it's sincerity, right? Which is like it, the, the, both Speed Racer and Josie um, are kind of about sincerity in your art, and um, and sincerity in who you are in the face of change and fear and doubt. Um, and, and there's something sort of timeless about that message, but it's also something about that message that doesn't get spoken quite frequently enough, right? You know, um, pop culture either sort of shows you or tells you to be more successful or, you know, to, um, you know, aspire to a pretty normative, uh, heteronormative and also sort of, uh, I don't know, societal normative, uh, expectation of what life should be for you as an adult and growing up and, or being a teenager and whatever, um, one to take a story about three friends going through a major change, uh, something that everyone can relate to. Um, but also, um, three, fr- you know, three people go- getting through, getting cycled through the system of, you know, the arts, right. Getting cycled through what's a good analog for any sort of, uh, a big, you know, hype machine or, um, you know, uh, behemoth in the art scene, right. Whether it, you are a filmmaker or a band, 
Uh, I used to uh, tour manage bands and I've seen similar things happen to friends in, in the, the face of fame and success, right? It, 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 just, it is truly the bull train. It's not the, the, the fictional make-believe world that, that, uh, <laughs> that Riverdale posits, right? With conspiracies and stuff like that. But, it, but the, 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 the speed in which things happen and the decisions that need to be made and the, 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 the actual damage done to people's friend, friendships um, because of it, uh, it is, is quite real. Um, and, and not that that's like enough of a, um, specific thing that like everyone has gone through, um, in their lives to relate to it. But I do think that there is, um, something quite brilliant about telling a story about something that feels very lived in. And I never really talked to Deb and Harry about whether or not they were trying to say anything about their own careers with this film. Um, I think about it more often, more frequently when I watch it, just because anytime any artist tells a story about an artist, I always like to think of it as an analog. But it is interesting to think that they came off of Can't Hardly Wait and they made a film about sort of the uneasiness of success and partnership, right? You know, both them as friends uh, and, and collaborators for so long. And then they basically their big major label film, you know, was, was this, this expression of sort of like, can friendships withstand um, adversity? Um, and, you know, and then on top of that... <laughs> it's just endlessly quotable and one of the funniest movies I've ever seen, you know, like all that heady, you know, nonsense. And then also, you know, you, it's endlessly quotable. Right. I mean, and it, amongst people who have seen it, you know, you can like, you know, I, I just got married this year and my wife is, was also a big fan of the film. So luckily I didn't have to, uh, you know, have to indoctrinate her or try to convince her otherwise, or just live with a woman who, you know, just didn't love this movie with the same that I did. Um, but you know, it is just a thing that like, that feels so comfortable that you can, if you know, somebody knows the film that you can make a du jour joke. Actually, uh, if this is not too much, um, inside baseball, when, when we connected via email, um, uh, my friend Ryan, our publicist was, uh, pulled me aside at this event we were at this weekend was sort of like, what's this du jour thing you guys keep going on about on email? <laughs> what Mo's talking about is when I was contacting people to be on the show and by people, I mean like hundreds of emails were sent to cast, crew, experts, professional Some fans. unbelievably good responses. I wish we so, could have published. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like what, what happens off the record stays off the record. But I would always sign off for something like du jour means I look forward to hearing from you soon. And it was flag waving in a way because Mo's right. When you know, you know. And Josie and the Pussycats came out my first year of high school. And I'd gone to that school knowing absolutely no one. So I didn't have many friends in my grade. The following year, I ended up getting invited over to the house of one of the cool chicks in the grade above me. And there were three of them. They like moved as a trio, very Charlie's Angels-esque. And I'd often seen them at parties that I shouldn't have been at. And that's how we become mates in the first place. Anyway, I get over to their house and I'm thinking, fuck yeah, I'm in. I finally got friends at the school and it's the cool <laughs> bad girls and the great above me. And the leader, Jess, tells me they're going to show me something cool. And I'm like, hells yeah, it's going to be cigarettes or booze or knives or something rad. And she takes me to a wardrobe, which is like the perfect place where you would hide something. Opens it up and... It looks like the fucking set of Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> <laughs> the entire wardrobe had been turned into this mini shrine. There were no clothes hanging in there whatsoever. And it was just pink and purple leopard print with pictures from the movie cut out and plastered over 
every inch of wall you could see. There was this like neon inflatable furniture that was very popular, sort oh of like post 2000s. A glitter lava lamp, which were always searingly hot and a major fire hazard. A bead curtain, a la Britney Spears' Oops, I Did It Again <laughs> album cover. Like all the classic noughties era girl shit, along with multiple copies of the soundtrack because she would literally play them until they were worn out. Three small words started cranking and they handed me a headband that was, as I'm sure you can all guess, leopard print cat ears. Now, I had never told them I was obsessed with the movie and I mean obsessed. I had the soundtrack on tape and listened to it every day, but there must have been something like some invisible juicy sense that was tingling and told them that I'd understand what they meant when they called something jerkin. For the next few years, Josie and the Pussycats was a staple at every sleepover we had. And then not just sleepovers with those girls, but other groups of friends outside of school and groups who didn't even know each other. This movie was on constant rotation on the sleepover circuit. And this was not a unique experience. Josie and the Pussycats had been stamped a big loss by the studio Universal and the pop culture world shuffled on pretty quickly. But this was the early noughts, remember, and video stores still existed. Films could get a second wind with home entertainment and become a seminal part of someone's life, which is exactly what Josie did. Okay, I am Eva from Charlie Bliss. I sing and I play guitar in the band. I'm Sam from Charlie Bliss and I play drums. This is my favorite press request we've ever received. <laughs> yup, that's brother and sister combo Eva and Sam Hendricks from Charlie Bliss, a power pop band out of Brooklyn whose music has definitely earwormed its way into your soul at some point after their explosive debut EP Soft Serve in 2014 and album Guppy a few years later in 2017. This is their track Percolator off that. thinking damn that song wouldn't sound completely out of place on the Josie and the Pussycats soundtrack then you'd be right because Eva and Sam are big frothy Josie and the Pussycats fans and have been since they were wee kids I think I was eight years old when I first saw Josie and the Pussycats and I remember I watched it at my friend Caroline Yost's house they had the DVD um and I I just was never the same I I really I I had the soundtrack uh on CD and I would just listen to it in my Walkman on like all of our car rides everywhere. And then had you already seen it when? No, I definitely saw it because of you. I can't remember if I heard the soundtrack first or saw the movie first, but it was definitely because of you. And it was like one of those movies, like if you have a sister, you'll see more movies than <laughs> my other friends who don't have sisters, you know? And I was like, I wanted to dislike it or like, cause I was too, I, you know, I felt like I was, oh, too cool for whatever. But I was like, no, this is incredible. This is, the soundtrack's amazing. The movie's amazing. I love it instantly. It's so good. I It's so good that I used to watch it every day after school. Uh, and it's the only movie that I know. I, I know every word to the entire movie. I think it's it's such a campy, fun movie um, that doesn't take itself too seriously. I also think, you know, like looking back now, I think I can see that I didn't really have many other examples of like women fronting a band that I had seen and it's such a movie about like girl power um and 
you know, obviously that ended up being something that I was really attracted to in my life and something that I wanted to actually pursue in my life later on. Uh, and I can really trace it back to like about that time in my life of like watching this movie about three lady best friends, you know, starting a band and taking over the world. Even, even like the silly, like the line of like, you know, when Val is always saying to Josie, like, who's a rock star? I am like, you know, it's silly, but it's like, it's so much about like su them supporting each other. And it's not about like, obviously like that's one of the major plot points in the movie that like they're brainwashing Josie into being, you know, like a diva. But like the crux of the movie is like that they're all super supportive of each other and think the world of each other. We interviewed Charlie Bliss while they were in Australia to play Splendor in the Grass last year and went and caught a sideshow of theirs at the Lansdowne, the Landy, and there's something to behold live, right, Blake? Yeah, my ears were ringing for a couple of weeks after that show. It was an absolute <laughs> banger. And Maria would have me say something like, Blake, when I teach you things, like, you know, it, it's, it's going to be really valuable for the rest of your life. But this was actually genuinely an incredible live experience. And, and Charlie Bliss just completely shredded my brain away. And I love it. I love their new album particularly. Outside of their killer live shows, the brilliant songwriting, the way they reboot the 90s sound from an audience, one of the defining traits of Charlie Bliss is their collective love of Josie and the Pussycats to the point that for a Halloween show in 2016, the whole band dressed up as Josie and the Pussycats <laughs> and played covers of the movie's soundtrack. I think it was early 2016. Mm. I think it was 2016 that we did it because I remember our album Guppy wasn't out yet. So, like, we'd never had an experience where we played a show and people in the audience sang along like that to any of our songs. So it made us feel like rock stars. But, yeah, we decided to cover it because it felt super obvious to us. Like, we love, I mean, at least Dan and Spencer don't really know the movie. I don't even know that they've seen it. But, <laughs> but for Sam and I, it's just this album that had this huge influence over us when we were younger. Um, and, like, also, it came together so easily it felt like we were meant to be playing these songs i really believe that like shapeshifter sounds like a charlie bliss song mm -hmm. like that to me like that's the song that most of all i'm like oh this could totally be on guppy and no one would be like oh weird um so it came together super easily and uh i think how many practices do we have for it like four a couple yeah but i felt like i was like living out something that i was like destined to be doing as a as a drummer like I, you know, I grew up playing along to Blink-182, and I was, like, I was obsessed with Travis Barker, as, as was every drummer back in the day. But uh, so, like, any outlet to play in this style, I was like, oh, my God, let's do this, please. <laughs> Definitely. And you know what was really interesting? Like, the movie was kind of a commercial flop. Mm. Uh, and so I never really know. I mean, to me, it's this, like, major aspect of my identity. But I never know how many people know the movie and know the soundtrack. And so it was really kind of amazing to play it for like 250 people in Brooklyn and having everyone screaming along and going totally nuts. I was like, oh, I guess this movie is actually really popular. And we played Slender in the Grass on Sunday. Um, and after we finished our set, someone yelled to me. They were like, Eva, Eva. I was like, what? And they were like, who's a rock star? Yeah, totally made my day. I want to see you strip. Down naked. I'm not gonna take you home. I'm not gonna take you. No, I'm not gonna take you. I'm not gonna take you. I'm not gonna take you home. I'm not gonna take you. No, 
fascinating is across the complete other side of the world, another music act was shaped by their love of Josie and the Pussycats as well. If you listen to either of our bonus episodes, Du Jour or Bossy Love, then you'll know who we're talking about. Hello, my name is Amanda Wilkinson. I am a musician, singer-songwriter, currently based in Glasgow. I'm the, I'm the singer of a band called Bossy Love right now, and I used to be a singer and guitarist in Operator Please. So basically, like, I'm just trying to think of the best way to do this, but I think the best way is fucking right back at the start. Um Yeah, you and I both moved over from New Zealand at a seminal time in our lives. (laughs) Should we say? Really? Went to the same school, got into lots of fights um, with people. Yeah, had a comp Uh for who had the most suspensions, and then we both went to different high schools (laughs) away from um, you know all the trouble that we've been causing, etc., etc. And and I think I think it was our first year of different high schools that this movie Josie and the Pussycats came out. When did you see yeah. it? How did you see it? What was your reaction? I, do you know, first, I, I think I saw like a trailer, obviously, in the cinema whilst I was going to see something else. And I'd known about the, the Josie and the Pussycats comics. So I knew that that existed. And um, at the time, I think like I was obsessed with Rosalia, uh, Rosaria Dawson, sorry. I was about to say Rosalia, like as in the singer, um, but Rosaria Dawson. And uh and also Rachel Lee Cook was like the girl of the time because of, uh, what was that? What was that? I mean, we were Freddie Prince Jr. She's all that. She's all that, baby. She's all that. That was before Josie, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, and I had also just like started guitar lessons as well. And um, so, yeah, I was learning to play music. I was probably, yeah, it was eighth grade. I had just picked up maybe a year and a half before, maybe like half a year before I just kind of picked up guitar. And so when this kind of came out, I was like, oh, cool. It's like a, you know, all girl rock band, which was like my dream because there was, you know, to be fair, when you're in high school and you're in like eighth grade, there isn't a hell of a lot of girls like playing drums or bass or guitar for that matter, or kind of being front people or singing because I feel like that was we were still at the point where it was seen as a very male thing to do and I mean we still got a long way to go in terms of that kind of thing but at the time it was just so apparent that our girls don't do band stuff you know especially at the at eighth grade or you know the beginning of high school where the emphasis on everything when you're going into high school is about being popular and looking cute and so when that movie came out, I was like, oh, amazing. So, yeah, I, I saw the trailer and then I went and saw the, the film, basically. It was one of the ones that I really wanted to see. So I, like, made my sister come with me to see it. <laughs> I love it. And were you obsessed with it immediately? Like, was your love an oh, obsession? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, so it was, like, straight away. Yeah, but it was, like, you know, it was kind of silent because I really had nobody to talk to it about because nobody had gone and seen it. Amanda sees Josie and the Pussycats in her first year of high school, just like me, loves it so much she learns to play guitar by playing the soundtrack over and over again. When she's 16, she starts a band with the other musical kids at her school with epic fringes so they can compete in (laughs) a Battle of the Bands comp. They win. 
blow up through MySpace and end up getting courted by major international record labels. When the kids are all teenagers and still in school, that band, Operator Please, break big with just a song about ping pong, release a hit album, tour the world with acts like Block Party, get rave reviews from important pop cultural figures at the time like Perez Hilton and Zane Lowe, and have this whirlwind few years in the music industry as kids who just love music and love rocking out with each other. There weren't many examples and representations of young girls actively trying to be rock stars in pop culture. No. And I think it's so interesting that this movie comes out and obviously was such a such a thing that you love, but such a massive influence on you to the point where a few years later you're a, a teen rock star. Like there's no other way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's kind of... Yeah, it was like such a formative film and uh, and record for me. And like a lot of people, you know, and also it's kind of like this cult um, pop culture moment, you know, which I think a lot of people know about. But um, a lot of people know about, there's a lot of fans about it, but it's obviously not talked about so much. So when you guys called me to do this, I was like, hell yeah. Because it was, it was such a huge part of me, like huge part of me actually, you know, getting the balls to kind of just, well, not even the balls, the pussy, to um, <laughs> come through and try and start something, you know, when all the odds were against me and, and everybody told me that I wouldn't make it or fail and or I would fail. I didn't realize how linear my journey was oh, with the film. Mate. Man. You kind of said it. And just like Josie and the girls in the movie, Operator Please kind of get chewed up and spat out by the music industry following the release of their second album, Gloves. Which is a banger. It is. And it makes no sense. Um, I mean, it's an absolute banger, but the music industry doesn't make sense. It's a <laughs> fucking weird machine, as we see in the movie. And, I mean, there's more to it than that, with Amanda copying a lot of shit from people in the Australian music industry, especially as not just a woman, not just a young woman, but a woman of colour. Now, she went on to form Bossy Love in Glasgow a few years later with Denon and Aykroyd's John Bailey Jr. And they're not only hugely great, but hugely successful. Yet her whole experience with Operator Please just made her appreciate Josie and the Pussycats even more. Hell yeah. Yeah. 100%. Like the movie I can watch over and over again just because it's like I can point things out and be like, yep, yep, that's right. Yep, that's right. And it's even funnier now that I've been through, you know, bar the mind control thing. I'm sure there's other ways that that happens apart from headphones. But like, um, you know, after being through and seeing firsthand this kind of stuff, <laughs> it's just funny to watch that movie because a lot of people were like, oh, this is like hyper reality. <laughs> and I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, that's real. You know, it's just that they've made it like a, you know, like a like a villain and a good, you know, that kind of thing. They've made they've they've hyper, they've just like uh, what do you call it? Uh, oh God, like why can't I talk? Yeah, they've magnified the characters and everything like that. So, but but like at the 
baseline, it's pretty accurate. <laughs> um, and like even the songs, like they're amazing pop punk songs, do you know, with really great riffs. And yeah, I still love that record. I still, it's so funny because when you were like, do you want to do this podcast? I like listened to the entire record and I was like, oh my God. And you get something in the back of your stomach. Like it's like a memory and nostalgia coming back. Josie and the podcast will be right back after this brief message from our sponsors. If you're anywhere vaguely close to the internet, odds are you've seen the work of Boss Logic. Like a boss. Famous for his pop culture wrist, this dear friend of the show is the man behind some of your favourite movie posters for Marvel, DC and many more. For exclusive prints, canvas art and much, much more, check out his shop www.artbybosslogic.com or check our show notes for the link. You can catch him on the gram and Twitter under BossLogic, B-O-S-S-L-O-G-I-C. First, feminist werewolves, then mermen, who are kind of sexy, witches, mediums who can control the dead, and now banshees. From the best-selling author of Who's Afraid? Who's Afraid 2? It Came From the Deep comes The Wailing Woman, the latest book from... The host of this goddamn show, Maria Lewis. The fifth novel in her shared supernatural universe follows teenage banshee Sadie Burke as she navigates the paranormal world of Sydney. Coming off the back of her win for Best Fantasy Novel at the 2019 Aurealis Award for The Witch Who Courted Death, The Wailing Woman is available in physical bookstores, if you're allowed in them, online and ebooks right now. The link is in our show notes and the book slaps. So what's fascinating about all this is while folks like Eva and Sam from Charlie Bliss, Amanda from Operator Please are being so profoundly affected by the movie to the point they're forming hugely successful bands because of this love and basing their entire careers on it, writers and directors Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont were mostly unaware. Deb said that the film flopping as hard as it did was like going to a funeral, but the first indication they had that Josie and the Pussycats was enduring and impacting people was through social media. Here's Deb, Harry, and the film star, Rachel Lee Cook. Social media. Yeah, not It wasn't so people could directly get in touch with us in a way. I mean, I don't know if you, because you, you, you get the experience sooner. because people. college in 2002. You know, only a year after the movie came out, and he was studying film, and they studied the movie in his class because the teacher really got it. So I was like, people are getting this, you know. But I feel like Harry's right. Like, until people could connect with us and also connect with one another about that shared experience, like, oh, that meant so much to me, it meant so much to me. And it really wasn't until, like, to me, like, maybe five or six years ago, when people started to say, like, this is the reason I picked up a guitar as a girl and started a band, or like, I watch this movie every weekend with my friends. Um, but you know, you don't know back then. I still don't know. Like, at that, even at that screening, I'm like, this is, the people think this is really good. This isn't the room, is it? Like, people are still genuinely into this movie. Yeah. Like, I really don't know. Jeez. Like, when they're talking along with the screen, I'm like, they do like it, right? I did. I I didn't think of it, but I hope we didn't make the room. I don't know. When I watched when I watched the Disaster Artist. Oh hi, Mark. And and they, the screening, you get to on stage and everybody's cheering for me. He's like, that's right. I meant to make a comedy. I'm like, I still don't know. Despite those super harsh reviews at the time, Josie and the Pussycats isn't the room. Ask anybody. Ask me. Well, okay, maybe don't ask me because I'm clearly biased doing a whole podcast about it. But ask Roswell, New Mexico writer Alana Bennett, who has absolutely nothing to do with the film 
except for the fact that she loves it. There's so much. Oh, my God. I, I mean, like what we just said about the ways that it integrates so many different commentaries, I think is really smart. Like, it doesn't feel like a quote-unquote issue movie, but it is about something, and it is kind of saying something about the way that we consume things. But also, I think part of what really, really sells it and what makes it such a good rewatch is that it's really grounded in, like, these women and their friendships. Um, and, you know, so it does it in very poppy ways um, and very fun ways, but it's still like you you do believe you believe in Josie and the you believe in these in their friendship. And especially, like yeah, like all three of them kind of coming from a different perspective and um, and just like watching them get torn apart. You know, you want them to get back together and you want um, people to succeed. And uh, it's uh, and the music is really good. <laughs> But yeah, I think that helps. I think so. All of those elements kind of come together, uh, and that the writing of it was really smart. And like, you have to have some emotional stuff that makes all of the more out there stuff uh, land. It's interesting. I mean, I loved. I mean, considering how important this movie was to me growing up, when I heard that that's what Riverdale was doing, it was like a dream come true for me. Because <laughs> it's like even just Rosario Dawson in the movie was a big deal for me as like a young black girl. Like she didn't, she got to do like really fun stuff that a lot of like black girls didn't get to do on, uh, on screen at that time. So it was uh, when I heard that they were um, going that direction with the Riverdale, Josie and the Pussycats, you know, it, it really felt like a really good 2019 version. And I do think it's a way of like, I don't know. It feels like, because Josie and the Pussycats is its own brand and it, and its own like offshoot of the comics. Like even if, um, you know, in Riverdale, they're supporting characters, it still feels like it's just so it's like, they're still their own thing. They're their own entity. And that has a power to it and a weight to it. Um, that I think is really cool and a really good way of, uh, working in some stuff that, you know, the rest of the series might not have. Alana saw a version of herself represented in Valerie, played by Rosaria Dawson, with that same character having been so crucial to representation in the 70s too, with the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. This was clearly part of the film's enduring appeal as different types of women identified with the characters and the narrative. Even actual rock stars like singer-songwriter Biff Naked, who sung backing vocals on the soundtrack. Um, no, you know, it was such a, I mean, it was such a cute, Story obviously, Josie and the Pussycats is like the cutest story, uh, you know, of a girl band basically, and uh, you know, coming up in uh, the music scene in the Pacific Northwest where I lived, you know, it was all about the riot girls, and uh, ultimately, uh, you know, I kind of self-identified as a, a real do-it-yourself, you know, feminist, you know, tough chick, uh, but at the same time, you know. It, Josie and the Pussycats was like the first time really, um, you know, girls got to see that kind of representation. Um, and even with, even with Buffy, you know, like, uh, that's a whole other experience altogether. And, um, again, such a great experience, you know, um, to be, uh, not typecast, but I, I love working on things that have anything to do with, uh, empowering uh, the identity of the characters. You know, these, these characters are, are very self-assured, self-aware females. And especially at that time in my life, it was really important to me. 
this story is a timeless story. And, and when you were talking about how you were wondering if it mirrored, you know, how I felt about my own career, I think it mirrors uh, any woman's career, really, because there is always going to be that that dream that you strive towards, that hopefulness, and then, you know, the the setbacks and the, you know, the, the climax is when, when you triumph over your obstacles. And I think that's a timeless story. And uh, I think it would be a great remake now. It's hard to say exactly what it is that makes a cult film a cult film. It's timing a little bit, that underdog sensation, like people desperate to show you the movie and help you discover something they feel has fallen under the radar. And it's maybe a little bit of luck too. And fuck it, who the hell knows? Mysterious Chemical X? We added an extra ingredient to the concoction. Chemical X. Whatever the hell it was, slowly but surely, Josie and the Pussycats became a beloved cult flick. Here's Garth Franklin, film writer and founder of Dark Horizons. It was one of those movies that kind of just vanished for a good few years. And it probably wasn't until this decade, um, probably in like the last five, six years, where there was a re-emergence of people like, oh, do you remember that movie? And it's like, yeah, yeah. Kind of, and there was kind of the love and appreciation grew for it, especially with the younger female audience. Because a lot of the uh, older fem- the female audience that was targeted at the time, um, which were, you know, in their, probably their teens then and now in their late 20s, they never really sort of glued onto it. It's the ones that came in after, the kids that came in after them that have really kind of warmed to this movie. And it was a My film agent. marketed at like 16, 17-year-olds, even though it was actually really kind of designed for your age, like 11, 12-year-olds. Lies! Its appeal was universal, damn it. Or at least it was for comic book historian and author of Betty and Veronica, Riverdale's leading ladies, Mr. Tim Hanley. I didn't see it in theatres. I knew it existed because I was still reading Archie comics and they blitzed them with ads for probably like a year straight from like the theatrical release to the DVD release. Just all Josie all the time. I think I got the special they put out that collected like all the earlier stuff, mostly Dan DiCarlo stuff oddly enough, even though he was no longer in the employ of Archie. Um, I didn't see the movie until it ended up on like the movie channels on my TV. I would have been 16 at the time. My sister was 14. We watched it one day and loved it and then like watched it every time it was on. We probably saw it about 20 times. And it was great. It's hilarious. It's unexpectedly insightful. And yeah, I absolutely loved it i can 100 percent understand why it was a box office bomb but i love it it's great the I music agree. is amazing i think it's very much of its time like if you were a teenager when josie and the pussycats came out and like were familiar with music from that area watching it back now it's like oh yeah that is exactly what was going on when i was young just in a funny satirical cutting right to the core of what foolishness the music industry is kind of way. And like, yeah, the music's great. It's hilarious. It's an absolute blast. And like the kind of thing that as a teenager at the time, you probably wouldn't have super appreciated. But as an adult now, looking back with a degree of nostalgia, you can absolutely love. 
the nostalgia ingredient was a huge factor, obviously. And this is a big part of why Letters to Cleo's Kay Hanley, aka the singing voice of Josie, is entirely unsurprised that Josie and the Pussycats became a cult classic and lived on way after its brief time on the big screen. Here's Kay. I'm not surprised in a way because um, so much of what, you know, so much of what the female driven you know, zeitgeist of the 90s, it, there's a reason that it's resonating again now. <laughs> it's because it was fucking good. And, um, and, and for a lot of reasons, that movie was just ahead of its time. The soundtrack, is, I think I also have a little bit of a distortion on it because the soundtrack has always been, like people have always flipped out about the soundtrack. So like I've, for ever since the soundtrack came out, People have just been like, oh, you know, have wanted to talk to me about it. So I think when people started catching on again, that the movie was just as good. It was was really, really misunderstood at the time. Um, I was like, mm-hmm, of course, you know, like it made sense to me in a very cartoonish way. Yes, it's you know, what's really <laughs> the at that time, it was so anathema for artists to take money and sponsorships and branding from corporations that it was like, it was such, it was just a very cartoonish villain. Like it almost wasn't, it was like, that would never happen. And now of course it's like, you don't even artists don't care about getting on, on, you know, MTV or anything like that. They want to know where their fucking Nokia deal is or their Samsung theme song you know like they so it's like artists and branding are so intertwined now that you forget that when Josie and the Pussycats came out that wasn't even a thing so it was it was predicting the future in this unbelievably prescient way <laughs> like I almost can't believe it so um so it it did I mean talking about my experience as a woman in the, in the music industry in the nineties, like you have to have another podcast about that because it's just too, there's too much. So yes, I related, but in a, in in a way I didn't because I didn't feel like, you know, taking money from sponsors and shit like that was anything I was ever going to feel comfortable with. I mean, just a year before we had turned down money for a Kool-Aid commercial because I thought that was not, I thought that was a terrible thing to do. Could you imagine How all of the drink of Kool-Aid I'm looking jerks. for my fucking Kool-Aid money now. I wish I had taken it. <laughs> the commentary on the music industry and commercialism and the subliminal messaging was also one of the things that stood out to the late, great Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne and co-writer and co-producer of the Josie soundtrack. Here he is on that exact topic. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because... I mean, the music business has obviously changed a lot in some ways, but also I, I think just the general sense that the music business is evil is the same. <laughs> and I, I, I like I that part of it. I mean, I, I think that, um, uh, I, yeah, at the time, I think that sort of went over a lot of people's heads, but, but it, I think it was sort of prescient in a way. 
Josie and the Pussycats Legacy is very much propelled by the soundtrack because even when the movie flopped, the soundtrack was a steady success. It was down to primarily how good that music was, yes, but also how weirdly timeless those songs became for a piece of pop culture that was designed to be of the time. Here's Eva and Sam again of Charlie Bliss. You know, who knows? But I, if I had to guess, I guess I would say that, like, I think the movie was probably ahead of its time. Um, I think that like a lot of the stuff that they predicted about the music industry or were pointing out about what was already happening in the music industry were stuff that like people weren't really ready to laugh about. Um, and, you know, now it feels just like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, that's just true. It's just obvious. Um, but I think, too, you know, like we talk a lot about our love for pop music and just how, you know, even back in the early 2000s and throughout the history of music, I think there's always been this tendency to be like, oh, I'm too cool for pop music. I'm too cool for whatever. I'm going to like only list my like serious, you know, musicians and bands that I like when people ask me what kind of music I listen to. Whereas I think like as we've, you know, as time has gone by and now like at this current point in time, I think that people are really open to being huge pop music fans and not taking themselves so seriously when it comes to what they listen to. Um, and there's less of the concept of like, oh, guilty pleasure music and more just like, no, like pop music is great. Indie music is great. Like I can still take you seriously, you know, if you listen to like Radiohead and Miley Cyrus and like the same, you know, <laughs> walk to work. Uh, and so I think like two people have just started to take themselves more seriously and are, you know, more down to be open about what movies and songs they love. I think it's the music because the music is so good I, and there's a lot of you know I think when you're younger you have a tendency to be like oh I liked that when I was little but it's so I see that it's so lame now whereas I feel like this song I only have my appreciation for these songs has only grown and grown as I've gotten older um and you know now that I've learned that like some of my favorite artists had a hand in writing these songs like Adam Schlesinger from um Fountains of Wayne and Kay Hanley I mean like there's so it's just kind of really fascinating that so many people worked on these songs and created this kind of like Franken soundtrack that is so good. Franken soundtrack is a great way to describe so it. Great, so great. And it's not surprising that one muser agrees with another because here's Amanda's thoughts on that same topic. The reason why it worked so well is because all like the the soundtrack was a massive part of that. Like it was real musicians making real songs. Like they didn't just like, they didn't just like make, oh yeah, we'll just like make a soundtrack now. Like the songs are great, do you know? And they were written for a specific purpose, specifically for the film, specifically from a, a female angle, do you know? And, um, and also the messages within the music are, are, are real. And it does, and even though it's like produced, like it's produced professionally and it sounds fucking amazing, that's still the raw element to it because these are real songs. These are real words. It's, it's from like a, uh, what do you call it? It lines up with the movie perfectly because it goes through all of the emotions that Josie herself goes through in the movie. And so there's like, it makes it real, do you know? And I think what, and I think the reason why the soundtrack in the movie did so well is because it it felt as though it was coming from a real perspective, and it probably was 
And there were probably women that did have that perspective and bringing that into a film. And so when people are like, dismiss it so easily, I'm just like, you're missing, you're missing all the messages. You're missing all like, listen to that line in that lyric. But I realize that a lot of people just don't do that. I mean, I love spin around um, <laughs> and pretend to be nice. Pretend to be nice was my favorite. Yeah, that's my favorite. Because I was, I was obsessed with that chunky riff and it was just, yeah. Like, why do you do what you do to me, baby? Shaking my confidence, driving me crazy. It was just, yeah, it was perfect. But all of the songs were perfect. I am like an ultimate fan woman right now. Like, I mean, I know that record like the back of my hand, hey. Mate, like, you fucking learned to play part. guitar off that record. What are you talking about? It's crazy. It's I so know, cool. like, because it was like a massive riff. And it was like, oh, my God, yeah. And like, oh, do you know? It was just so good for that time for me. It was such a important record for me. And like, and you know, like I was made to feel ashamed of it because people were like, oh, that's lame. Do you know? Like for a wee while there. But now that I'm like, that I don't care, I realize that I don't care what anybody thinks. <laughs> I'm just like full blown Josie and the Pussycats lover. Somebody else who is a professional Josie and the Pussycats lover, like it's his job, <laughs> is Alex Segura, co-president of Archie Comics. He caught the movie on the big screen like the metallic pink unicorn it was. And even though he didn't work and write for Archie then, in hindsight, the way people connected with the characters and the message and the world when he was in his late teens isn't that different from the way they're connecting with it now. Here's Alex. It's funny, yeah. It's gotten it's this whole life of its own because obviously on the entertainment side, Josie is a different thing now. I mean, Josie's on Riverdale and she'll be on Katie Keene the show um and so this is a very one-off funny weird take on the characters and it's so interesting to watch people create this world with it like having the screenings like you said and you know people love that soundtrack so it's, it's really fun to see just from a distance i think it's just what you were saying it's just much more layered and you know you look at it on the surface it's just kind of a teen candy movie you know it's just one of these like random movies that has a very shoestring plot and Maybe you get a few chuckles, but if you watch it, there's so much more said there. And the acting is surprisingly good. The music is good, which I think people maybe didn't expect right away. It was just, I think it was just written off out of the gate as this kind of kitschy thing. And there's so much more to it. Um, you know, there's like a, I think a good comparison to something like Buffy that, you know, just built this cult following and it was obviously much more popular at the time. It was a hit, but there's this obsessiveness with it that, is a byproduct of the internet, you know, in the, with the internet and social media, everything that you held dear, you will find people that also hold it dear and you can then amplify that. Um, so I think for a long time it was dormant and people watched it and maybe didn't have anyone to speak to about it. But now that, you know, we're so globalized, you know, you can find your tribe. And I think people connected over this movie, which is amazing. Connectivity and social media is an interesting point to stay on for a moment because cult films were able to become cult films without those things in the past. Like, hello, Rocky Horror, Valley Girl, Army of Darkness, Warriors, literally every John Waters film <laughs> yeah. ever made. You needed Hate. to be part of a family. You need to be part of a fan club before <laughs> and write letters and shit. And now it's just a tweet. But in the specific case of Josie and the Pussycats, connectivity and social media is when the film's cult status started to manifest in earnest. That's certainly when Deb, Harry, and Rachel noticed it from the time people could reach out to them directly and say, hey, I love your thing. That's how Rachel found out about Ethan 
who goes by Amalgam Comics on Twitter if you want to look him up, who watched Josie and the Pussycats every day for a year and charted his journey with the hashtag JosieQuest. <laughs> During our interview, Rachel played Deb and Harry audio of meeting Ethan and, of course, they knew who he was straight away. Okay. Hey, Deb and Harry. I'm in Raleigh at uh, Supercon. Uh, I just met a friend of ours. I want you to meet Ethan. Ethan, tell me about your accomplishment. Hi, I finally met Rachel Lee Cook, and I'm the Josie Quest guy. Oh, no way! Oh, no way! Josie oh, my God! Oh, no. Josie Quest. He watched the movie every day for, for a whole year. A year. 365 days, he watched the movie. Whoa! Yeah. That's the kind of feverish fandom Josie and the Pussycats inspires. Josie Quest. It also inspires endless features and listicles about why it was ahead of its time, Refinery29, how it was misunderstood upon its release, LA Times, seven things you don't <laughs> know about Josie and the Pussycats, BuzzFeed. Looking back at 2001's Josie and the Pussycats, film crit Hulk, a strong argument for why Josie and the Pussycats is the best movie of all time, AV Club. Josie and the Pussycats are the best fake rock band ever, Fader. Why Josie and the Pussycats means so much to the millennial generation. I wrote that last one just for graffiti with punctuation. Holla! <laughs> but all of these pieces, and, you know, with the exception of the BuzzFeed one, they're meaty, they're in-depth features with research and fresh interviews and analysis. They all started popping up in the last five years or so. Josie and the Pussycats might have never done what Deb and Harry and Rachel hoped it would do at the time of its release in 2001, but it has gone on to become a cult film, which is a legacy they frankly never expected at the time, and it's one they're kind of delighted with now. I also don't think anyone sets out to make a cult film. Mm. You know, everyone sets out to make a film that they think will connect, and like somehow you accidentally make a cult film, if you're lucky. You know, like you either make a total failure or you make a cult film. So thank God. I'm right? just so happy that the movie is still so damn enjoyable. You know what I mean? Just a lot of things, just they don't date well. Yes, this is dated. It's now 20 years old, but that doesn't mean it's not just as great as it was then. You know? I mean, in my darkest fears, I mean, while we were making the movie, I think it may have been a couple days in after shooting. We were shooting with Parker in the big control room area. I was up at night, and you have these moments. You have like these panicky moments at night, and I did have that moment of like, oh, "Fuck, we're making a cult film." Really? Like, yeah. I was like, like too oh silly, my! I was up. It's just, just, it's, it's campy. It's broad. Like, who's gonna go see this movie? And you have those thoughts anyway True. about no whatever. But it really was kind of this panic. And but you, but you, what you don't see there is like, yeah, people are gonna be talking about the movie for years. Like, if it is a cult, that's great. Cult films, by their very definition, acquire a fan base. They don't necessarily start out with one, and Josie and the Pussycats has certainly been acquiring that shit like it's Pokemon for the past <laughs> 20 years. Which, for someone who specializes in cult film and cult fandom, couldn't be more important, according to Moshe Fake, especially when the conversation around what is and isn't a cult film can be, well, such a swinging dick contest. Then those are my words, not his. Here's his words. Like, what? truly triggered everyone into thinking that, you know, um, you know, the, you know, not the matrix, but you know, like that, like fight club was essential cinema. Yeah. We've had, we've had three great music parody films in our lives. 
we've had This is Spinal Tap, we've had Josie and the Pussycats, and we've had Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping. <laughs> yes. It is interesting that both both the latter two are people, they're all cult classics and they're movies that, that people have yet to really, truly come out. I mean, it's starting to happen with Popstar, luckily. Um, it didn't take nearly as long with Josie, but um, it's just underexposure, you know? Like, there's something about them that, like, they're, they're so their finger is so on the pulse that it just doesn't work with people who don't really aren't looking for that outlet. Right. You know, if you, yeah. if you grew up listening to music and being obsessed with music, you know, there's something really nice about being able to laugh at the trends and the things that you like and the things that you don't like, right. Finding common ground and being able to like make fun of it, but also respect the idea that like, that isn't going to change the fact that it exists. You're just going to enjoy it. You know, cause I remember thinking that I was like, I was a bit of a, like a, cynical jerk you know I would have been the person that um that Wyatt threw into the you know the van and brainwashed into thinking of <laughs> nonconformity. you know you know not quite wearing like all black in a, a virgin megastore but you know like I definitely <laughs> rolled my eyes at the at the construction of boy bands and and girls groups you know like I thought that there was something so inauthentic about it but meanwhile I was listening to Blink-182 and Green Day and all this other you know uh, major label you know, uh, rock and roll that, you know, if you, you know, could very well have also been in the same exact manufactured thing that whatever, you know, like it just, it's all, it all, it's, it, 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 there's something about that timing of that coming out, just being able to laugh about how pompous people who think that they're better than pop music are any amount of spotlight that gets shined on this movie is not bright enough. You know, I think we need, we, we need to all, we need to make this the most important movie of all time. That is it. That is our last major episode of Josie and the Podcast. Shit. That's it. Dunskies. Oh Jerkin means Finn, baby. <laughs> <laughs> How you but, feeling? Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Feeling I, like you gave birth. Uh, oh, fuck. I hope not. <laughs> but there is one more bonus episode coming out this Wednesday about the Josie and the Pussycats live concert, which happened on the film's 16th year anniversary and it literally brought the whole band back together. So be sure to like, review the show if you want, subscribe so you don't miss that bonus coming up. And this episode of Josie and the Podcats was researched, written and presented by me, Maria Lewis. And produced by me, Blake Howard. Our podcast artwork was done by the incredibly talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at, at amy.read0310 at gmail.com. And our jerk and theme, again, is actually by one of the guests and voices of this entire crazy enterprise, which is just staggering, Amanda Wilkinson of Bossy Love and Edwin Organ. Thank you so much for our jerk and theme song, Bossy Love's New album, Me Plus You, is out now wherever you get your music. If you know someone who's hearing impaired and would enjoy the show, written versions of every episode, including this one, the bonus apps are all available online. The link is in our show notes. And for the second last time, who's a rock star? Josie in the podcast.